this is the audience participation moment. So get ready with your hand. All right. And I just, I love the anxiety that I just saw across everyone's face. They're like, what? No, this is real easy. Okay. Raise your hand if you remember show and tell from school. Anybody do show and tell? There you go. I think, I think that's almost everybody in here. There was just like one holdout in first service. And I don't think it's that they didn't remember show and tell. I think they were like, I am not going to do what Andrew says when he says, <laughs> put your hand up. I think that was more about what it was, was all about. OK, but we remember. We've done show and tell, right? Maybe you remember the object that you brought. Maybe you just have this cemented in your brain somewhere, core memory created, that you had that thing for show and tell. What do we do? with show and tell. This is actually a really good exercise, but you bring the prop, right? You bring the object, you show it to your class, and you talk about what it means. Because it is important for us to have both show and tell in our world. Now, I associate show and tell with like a you know, preschool, early elementary, first couple grades of school activity. But um, there was a shift that happened in March of 2020 when we moved youth group online into like a Zoom group that we were doing. And all of a sudden, show and tell was where it was at. I had high schoolers that were just like giddy with like, I can't wait to show you what I have been doing this week. And there was one time we were doing like, we tried... We tried this kid's like VBS thing with show and tell online. And, and this one little kid was like, oh, yeah, we've got. And I don't even remember what it was that she was talking about. But it was not an object that a first grader should be holding. And, and I was like, OK, show and tell. What's something interesting in your house? And she was telling me about this thing. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. She's like, I'll go get it. And she runs off the camera. I was like, no, I have no power in this situation. No, there's one kid, we were doing show and tell for youth group, and he's hanging out in his hammock, and he's got his phone like this. And that kid just had the best time with youth group that day. He was just like, I have built myself a fort. I am never leaving. And that was his show and tell. Now, uh, screenwriters, movie producers, like people who tell really good stories, they know that it is important. Good writing shows you more than it tells you. So for example, right? Like if I was going to bust out my super cool screenplay about Sherlock Holmes that I totally don't have on this iPad somewhere, right? But I don't, actually. There's no Andrew screenplay about Sherlock Holmes. But if I was to have one, all right, it's a lot better for like Sherlock to walk in, solve the crime within two minutes, and have that be the way that tells you he's really smart, because he's Sherlock Holmes, rather than to have two people at a coffee shop be like, hey, wow, that's Sherlock Holmes. He's really smart. Like, what's, what's more convincing? And, and we know this to be true. Now, think about when you were trained for work, right, or anything really important. Would you rather be told or shown? Would you rather be told or shown. I have been both in my life. I have times where someone's like, oh, it's really simple. You just go in there, you do this, you hook that up, you do it. And I'm like, what? Where's the YouTube video? Like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm reading, 
I'm reading the instructions, and it's like put bracket A into bracket C, and bracket F is over there somewhere, and I'm like, I don't get it. But, but when I've had those moments where someone came alongside me, right, they said, come on, Andrew, we're going to, you know, build this. We're going to do this together. Here we go. Or I watch the YouTube video. I'm like, well, that's how you do it. Duh. I would never have called that bracket C. Like, that makes no sense to me. And actually, if we look at the model of um, the biblical world with like disciples and rabbis, which are words that we generally don't use unless we're talking about the Bible, um, but, but in the model of discipleship with rabbis and disciples, the teacher and the learner, the rabbi wouldn't do very much of what we're doing right now, where like the person stands up looks at the crowd, and I'm going to tell you stuff. But what was more important is the rabbi, like the disciples would follow them, and he would show them in the everyday interactions. Like who did they talk to? How did they talk? How did they treat these people? And, and you know this, right? You've had people look you in the face and tell you your call is important to us, right? Or like you've had people tell you, I care about you. I love you. You're so important to me. Please hold. Like that, like we get that. But then what about like when you've had someone show you? Like they, they showed up. They rolled up their sleeves. You needed them. And they came through. Well, in this passage of the book of Matthew today, we are going to be looking at moments where Jesus shows us what the kingdom of God looks like. What does it mean to follow God? Like, what is Jesus really all about? And we have just finished a uh, series through the Sermon on the Mount, because we're, we're in series within series, which makes Pastors like me really excited, but I understand why some of you are like, wait, what? Where are we at? Like, we're in Matthew 9. It's okay. Here we go. But, but we have been, like, going through this journey through the book of Matthew because, like, at the end of the day, there's a cross on our stage because we are all about Jesus. And I'm, I'm in front of you right now. Like, I have opened God's word. I have spent time in prayer because my heart, like, I'm all about Jesus, and, and I think that the truth that could change all of our lives is if we could experience, if you have seen Jesus show up for you. And, and so we just finished this series where Jesus stands up and he tells everybody about what it means to be the real deal, to follow God. Like this is what he's going to tell them to be like. And then in the very next chapter... Matthew starts kind of rapid-firing all these little vignettes, all these little tiny stories. And his versions of them are shorter than like Mark and Luke. Mark and Luke, they, they're like taking their time and they're, they're like showing all these different details and cinematic things about it. But Matthew's just like, Jesus did this. He showed us what it looks like to be a kingdom person in this situation, next situation. And we just go boom, 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 boom. So here's what, here's what I'm hoping we're going to do, okay, is that... Each of these mini stories is going to be like, like a, a little block in our concept as we build out. What does it look like to be a, a good human? What does it look like 
to be the type of person that, that Jesus taught us to be. Because many of us would say, I'm a Christian. I'm putting on the Jesus jersey. Like, I, I live this way. Well, what does it actually mean? So let's take a deep breath and maybe unload some of the stuff that we've picked up this week. Something that's weighing us down, burdens that we're carrying. Let's put that aside and just see what God would have for us, okay? Deep breath in. Father God, and we ask you to meet us in this place. We ask you to meet us this week as you've met so many people and you've showed up in so many lives. God, let us be um, people that take small steps towards you and that over time those steps would be our journey of following you. We trust you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, this, is, this is week one of the new series, but it's, it's kind of part two to the last one I did, where in Matthew 8, um, we talked about how Jesus healed centurions, you know, lepers, social outcasts, and mother-in-laws, which everyone loved when I said that joke, so I'm just going to milk that for all it's worth. But, uh, like, Jesus, so he's walking around, he's healing people, that are kind of the down and outs and not who you would expect after he's just dropped this manifesto of what it means to follow God. And there, there was one point where someone with the resume, like the scribe, the guy who if like you're going to hire a church planting team, like if you want this guy on your church staff, that's the resume you want. And he comes up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I will follow you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Because this guy he wanted something from Jesus, right? He wanted to gain from being around Jesus. And Jesus is like, guys, the, the kingdom of God, I mean, it does give you stuff, right? Like all these things will be added to you, but it's a high cost. It's a high cost. And there's another guy who comes to follow Jesus. And Jesus, he taps him on the shoulder. He says, hey, will you follow me? And this guy says, well, I got some business to take care of first. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to say, this is about priority. This is about priority in this situation. Like, what are you going to value? And then Jesus backs it up by healing all of these people and doing miraculous things. And, and I've, I've talked to people and walked with people who are like, I, I don't believe that, like, a human can do this. Or they have kind of a, a breaking point struggle with, okay, so there's lots of miracles in the Bible and, and I've got a couple responses to that. I, kind of at a snarky level, I would say, yeah, I don't think people can do that either. And that's kind of the point, is because Jesus is doing stuff that I have no right to do. But, but God can do it. Um, so that's, that's one level. Another level is like, well, what? Before we start quibbling about the what and the how, like, did Jesus, like, send little Jesus nanites that, like, repaired spines? Or, like, what? Well, how is he doing that? That's not the question that the gospel writers are answering. The question that they have an interest in is why? Why does God talk to a human? Why does God show up for the nation of Israel? Why does Jesus care about lepers and paralytics? And so I might, I might ask us if we've got 
some baggage maybe to, to either put that aside or lean into it or wrestle with this because let's get into the text. Here we go. Um, chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Matthew is kind of zooming in on this and moving pretty quick. Now, Mark and Luke, when they're going to record this story, they talk about the whole like cinematic part of the fact that there's like people jammed in this house with Jesus. They're not making way for the, the people to carry their friend who is paralyzed into the house. And so what do they do? They go up on the roof and they make this house ADA compliant. Like they rip it open and cut a hole in the roof and start lowering him down. But Matthew says, that's not the detail I care about right now. He takes the camera and he zooms it in on Jesus's face. And Jesus looks at this guy. Now, so many times Jesus looks at someone with a very obvious problem. He looks at the person with leprosy. What's their problem? They have leprosy. Like the people who are demon-possessed. Like, what's their problem? They're demon-possessed. He looks at the guy who's paralyzed and Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. So what's the guy's problem? He's got, he's got a heart problem, right? And, and I don't completely know exactly what Jesus is doing here, um, except there's some clues, all right? So one of the clues that I have is the phrase he uses. He says, take heart, my son. And... And as much as we hear that kind of in like the Bible-y voice, like that's what you're supposed to say when you read the Bible. Jesus is like, my son. Like, but, but this is a, an affectionate term. This is Jesus slowing down, looking the guy in the eyes, seeing him as a person, and saying, buddy, my friend. He looks at him like a person, and then he talks about the sins are forgiven, and I wonder, I wonder because of what I know about that culture, that many people probably thought that this guy was paralyzed because it was his fault. They thought, well, this thing happened to me because God did it, because I'm bad, because I deserve it, because I'm not valuable. And there's lots of thought experiments that people have done, kind of like, why does Jesus look at this guy? Because he doesn't look at the leper and say, your sins are forgiven, leper. He says, you're cleansed of your leprosy. I'm willing to cleanse you. But this guy had it as a weight. And, and we get another story. There's one time where Jesus and his disciples are walking by. They see a guy who's born blind. And Peter, who always says really smart stuff, is like, hey, Jesus, so whose fault is it? Is it his parents' sin or his sin? And Jesus is like, you don't get it, do you? Because there are 43 poetic chapters in the Old Testament with the book of Job where like the whole point is that the, the chaos of the world, like the bad stuff that happens, because we have all been through stuff, right? We have all got bumps and bruises. And the story of Job, like it, it flies right in the face of that kind of karmic 
retribution of like if I say something bad to this person, then I'm going to like stub my toe because God's like, bam, lightning bolt, I gotcha. But we, we think that way sometimes. We think that way. There was one time I, I was really upset because there was some stuff outside of control, my control in my life. Like, I was just a high schooler. I had no control over lots of situations. And I looked at a people in authority over me, and I was like, if you would just repent, like if you would just get your life in order, then I wouldn't be hurt right now. And I wonder how much weight like this guy has had on him for years and years. How much guilt has been heaped on this person? And Jesus looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I wonder, like, would the guy have just been happy with that? Like, would that have been just what he needed to be at peace with himself? To have the noise in the back of his head, like the guilt, the story, the thing that plays? For Jesus to quiet that? And then the scribes, right, the, the religious elite, looking at this are like, Jesus, you broke the rules. You can't forgive sin. And it, it, it's a pretty audacious statement when you look at God and tell him what he can and can't do. Although if I'm honest, like, I've done that, right? Like, I've been like, you can't do that to me. And so they think, they're like, well, this man is blaspheming. And Jesus says, which is easier? What is easier for me to say to this guy? That your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take your mat, and walk. And then what, what happens in this moment, right? Jesus says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralytic, says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. So like Jesus heals the guy's legs after having healed his heart. And here's, here's what I think. Um, we, we've talked about the, the structure of biblical stuff, and oftentimes the center of the sandwich, right? They will tell stories and put the good stuff in the center of the sandwich. And this moment, I think, is close to the center of this passage. And at the center of this all is someone's heart. As much as Jesus is around healing skin and healing physical problems, Jesus takes both of those things with this guy and puts it in alignment. And I wonder, I think that's like the crux of the kingdom. This is Jesus showing us. This is what it means to be his people, is that we have our sin, we have our broken relationships, we have our, our struggles, those are dealt with, and then that brings healing into our lives. It's this beautiful mismatch in, it's this beautiful marriage of those two things. And that is the kingdom of God. Next story, as we talk about, well, what, is, what else is the kingdom of God like? Well, Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man named Matthew. Congratulations. Matthew has finally entered the story. We've been going since January in the book of Matthew, and Matthew just showed up. All right. But as Jesus passes from there, he sees this guy named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. That means that he is a tax collector, which means he's a bad dude. He is the scum of the earth. 
And that's, not, that's a phrase I really don't say very often, right? But that is how everyone sees this guy. Because what Matthew has done in their culture, like you had the taxes that the, the government was going to impose on you, and it wasn't like, you know, just a letter from the IRS, although those like are terrifying, but also like the Roman legion would be like, oh, you're late on your payment, you're dead now. Like, so intense. And then the way that Matthew got money for collecting these taxes is he then added his own percentage on top of it. And that commission was decided by Matthew. And there was nothing you could do about it. So he could charge exorbitant prices. And I'm so glad that's not how my CPA operates, right? Like, he's just like, he's not like, okay, so you owe the IRS this much and then me twice as much. But that's how Matthew did things. And so he sold out his culture. He has traded the stability of his community for personal gain. And that's terrible. And Jesus walks up to him, and like the scribe with the resume, Jesus says, yeah, I've got no interest in this. But the tax collector at the booth, he taps him on the shoulder and says, follow me. And, and Matthew has made a lot of bad decisions up to this point. But he makes one really good one when it matters. When Jesus taps him on the shoulder and says, follow me, Matthew rose and followed him. And so then Matthew throws this party at his house with all the tax collectors and the, the sinners. And that is a word that means like all the people who are not in the Torah observant, like keeping God's law, the the attractive, the pretty, the put together, the wealthy, the people with it all together, right? That's the people that are not sinners. And the people that are a mess, those are the sinners. People that are just in the middle of the chaotic lifestyle. And Matthew throws a party with the scum of the earth, and Jesus is right there with them. That's the party Jesus goes to. And the Pharisees have a problem with this. So they come to Jesus' disciples. And, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, they say, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You're supposed to be at church in a Bible study in a suit. You're supposed to like wear a vest and have an iPad like Jesus. Get it together. But where is Jesus? He's at a dinner table with people that are a mess. People who are hurting. People who need a positive force in their life. And I think that's where God does his best work. I think that's, that's the core of it. And so if we think, right, we say this phrase, we're like, let's go be the church. If we think this is being the church right now, I think we've missed the mark. Because when we go, this is, this, is what, this is what I did this week with my um, discipleship group. I got, got a couple of young guys, and, and I said, okay, would you be willing to discover from God's word what it means to have purpose and be spiritual leaders? And they said, okay, so we went to a flooded field, put on our rubber boots, and walked into a trailer that had a bunch of stuff in it that someone needed to get the trailer out of the stuff, but they were not physically able to do it. And so, like, we are caked in mud by the end of this thing. 
Like, it, it was kind of a crazy adventure. And unfortunately, now you know, if Andrew taps you on the shoulder, it's like, hey, you ready to go be the church? Like, get ready. Get ready. But what if that was? Like, what if that was? Okay, what if, like, I just think it would be so cool if as my daughter grows up and I say, okay, daddy's going to go to church. What she doesn't think is, well, he's going to put on his nice clothes and he's going to stand in front of people. He's going to tell jokes and embarrass himself. But what if, what if she thinks he's going to bring the kingdom of God to people that need it? He's going to show up and love the broken. He's going to care about people. I'm going to like stand behind and support people who no one else is cheering them on. What if that's what it means to be the church? There's a, uh, a little diagram that I have uh, here. And this is, this is a, a model from mathematics that somebody who is way smarter than me um, decided this is what discipleship looks like, okay? Um, and so I don't understand how this connects to math, but I do understand people. And so uh, the way this works is the Pharisees, right, the idea of the religious had drawn a line. They said everybody inside the box, all the dots, everybody that meets these criteria, right, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do, like whatever you're going to say right in there, they are the good ones. They're the ones that God's okay with. But then everyone on the outside, everybody whose life does not fit my criteria, they are tax collectors and sinners. They are excluded. They do not fit. But here's what Jesus's model of it is, is Jesus doesn't care as much about the location of where you're at as much as the trajectory of like, well, where are you going? And so you look at this, this is kind of messy. This is, this is the circle, and it matters less. It doesn't matter about whether you're inside or outside. It matters, are you moving towards the center? Because if Jesus is at the center, like, are you moving towards Jesus? Now, this is where it gets harder to tell. Because on the Pharisees' model, can you tell who's the good guys and the bad guys? Absolutely. 100%. Very easy. But if we look at the heart of things... If we look at Jesus' model where it matters about the trajectory of where this thing is going, you see that dot like right in the center? It's real close. What if I told you it's moving away? It's moving in the wrong direction. Well, all of a sudden, it's no longer on the right path. But what about that one that's way far away? Up in the corner. It's, it's so far removed from what we thought. You know, the, the good, the put together. But if it's taking steps, if it's moving in the right direction, then it's on track. And I wonder if, what, what if we look at our hearts and we said, okay, so how close am I to this vision of what it means to follow God where we are at a table with people who are a mess, where we are, are hanging out with, we are caring about people who need love because here's, here's what I know, all right? Take a look this way, take a look that way. All of those people you just saw need love, right? All of those people need God to show up in their life in some way. And so, I think being like Jesus means entering into the mess. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he says, go and learn what this means. And this is, this is a pretty big, this is Jesus being sassy right now. 
because he quotes one of the most basic Bible passages. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you were to sum up, like what is the whole thing that God says? Is he says, it is about the heart. I care about what's going on deep down inside. Now imagine if I walked into a staff meeting at Dallas Church. We had all the elders, all the staff, and I was like, guys, I've got this revolutionary idea. I think you all need to go and study it and figure it out. I think that God so loved the world that he gave his son that anyone who, like if I, if I said, okay, we just need to learn John 3.16 because that's what Jesus is doing. He's like taking it back to the foundation. And these Pharisees, they think, they're like, I know that. And Jesus is like, well, if you know it, then go do it. If you know it, then live it. And he calls them into something bigger and better. Because then you've got, okay, so the, the Pharisees, we're used to them being the bad guys. They're fighting Jesus every which way. But then the disciples of John, they're supposed to be, like, you've got, like, the closest thing in the first century to following Jesus was, like, following John the Baptist. And these disciples look at Jesus and they're like, he's not doing ministry right. We don't get it. We think that you should fast. We think that there should be all these markers of what a good person looks like. Nobody in the smelly football team that is following Jesus of 12 dudes, nobody meets these criteria. What's that all about? And Jesus tells them, he says, that you don't take a piece of a new garment to patch the old garment. Okay, I've got a favorite t-shirt, and I've loved this t-shirt for years, but there's just now too many holes in it where, like, I can't actually wear it to Walmart anymore. <laughs> and I love that thing. It was so comfy. And then, and then my wife and I, we went um, to one of the coolest clothing stores that I love, but they're not paying for this video, so I'm not going to tell you who it is. But, uh, no, but, but, like, she just bought this really cool coat. Like, how terrible would it be? If I pulled out my scissors, I went up to my wife's, like, really expensive, nice, cool adventure coat, and I was like, I'm going to patch my favorite t-shirt. Like, no, you don't do that. Well, Jesus says you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And that has to do with the fact that, like, back then, right, you put it in the, the wineskins, and I'll just let Ben, with all of his knowledge about winemaking, like, fill this in for us later. But if you do this, then the new wine, it's going to have its chemical reaction, it's going to expand, and it's going to break the skins and go everywhere. It's bad. And, and here's what I do know, is that wine that is spilled in the desert is not good wine, right? So that, I do know. And Jesus says, you can't take this new paradigm, kingdom of God, and fit it into the old paradigm. This new thing, I'm trying to show you guys what it's like, and you, you can't take it and fit it into old models. But here's the interesting thing. Like, I grew up in church, and I feel like I was educated in many of the old models of what it means to follow Jesus. You, you get on the inside of the box. You do the right things, right? And then good things will happen to you. You, you distance yourself from sin and brokenness in this world. 
has Jesus ever done that in the last like two chapters? Like, where would you, where is that in any of this? Because Jesus is showing us what it means to be the new kind of people, the kind of life that he calls us into. And, and here's one thing that I just think is so interesting. Most of the time, when people push back on Jesus, and, and they, they hear, my brothers call this the, the P-bomb, because when people find out I'm a pastor, the conversation ends, right? Like, I'm, I'm having a great conversation with someone about their dirt bikes. And well, what do you do for work? I'm a pastor. Like, all of a sudden, they're like, what? well, I don't go on Sunday. I'm like, I didn't ask you. I don't care. Go on Sunday. Like, dirt bikes are awesome. But, but it's so interesting that what people push back on is old wineskins. Like, what people push back on is the old paradigm. Like, what if you're having conversations with people and say, okay, well, what do you really believe in life? Well, I believe that, like, a benevolent creator created this world, and when he made it, he made humans to take a really good day off, to recharge their batteries. Nobody says, well, that's just oppressive. I'm offended. Like, nobody, nobody says that. When, when I say, okay, so I believe, right, that nobody should be hungry or, or lonely, or I think we should end depression in the world. Nobody at any of the public sectors, right, any public school, any public gathering is like, well, that's just terrible. We disagree with you. No. But a lot of times what people are pushing back on, and when the church has done ugly things in history, we're, we're putting it back on to old wineskins. Like we're trying to fit back into a model that Jesus called us out of. So this, this, very, next, this very next story, um, there's two miracles that Jesus does, right? A ruler comes to Jesus and says, my daughter has died and I need you to help with this situation. Uh, which is kind of impressive that this guy is coming to Jesus in that situation. And then on the way, so like this is a life and death situation, Jesus takes the time to talk to someone else. Because there's a woman who has a discharge of blood. That's, that's how the Bible's phrasing it, so that's how I'm going to phrase it. And this woman touches the fringe, the tassel, the hem on Jesus' garment in order to be healed. And when, when that happens, Jesus looks at her and says, take heart, my daughter. He sees her as an individual, just like the paralytic guy, right? A little bit earlier. Same situation. And he looks at her. He sees her as a person. He meets her need, and she is healed. And then Jesus walks in to the girl who is dead, and Jesus says, she is sleeping. She's not dead. I'm sure everyone else is like, and we'd like to see your medical license right now. Like this. But, but from Jesus' perspective... She must have been because he, he went and he takes her by the hand, he touches her, and she rises from the dead. Now, here is what is theologically significant about this. This is the why of how Matthew has arranged this. Remember, last time I was up here, I talked about Jesus touching the leper. 
and nobody got shocked, right? Nobody's surprised. Even now, you're just like, uh-huh, yep, that's what Jesus does. He rides on donkeys, touches lepers. That's how this goes. But you're not supposed to do that in the Levitical law. Like, and to be a good person in the old model, you don't touch dead things. You don't touch lepers. And bodily fluids were also one of those things. So Matthew just hit every single one of the categories of human messiness. That's what he's trying to show us. Now, here's what you and I know about messiness. Our finances, they're a mess sometimes. Our marriages, they're a mess sometimes. Our careers, our relationship with ourself and our past trauma and what has been done to us that we had no control over, that's a mess. And Jesus comes into the mess. And that is the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus is showing us, is that he comes into the mess. Then we got two more real quick stories. As he heals two guys that are blind, and the blind guys see who Jesus is. And then there's someone who is demon-possessed and mute, and he can't talk. And then Jesus heals him, and he's telling everyone about Jesus. And the Pharisees, now they could talk, and they are telling everyone Jesus is from the demons. And the guy who saw the demons is like, okay, I, I, was, I actually know what they are like, right? He's like, I understand demons. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus is nothing like that. And so Jesus shows up in all of the areas of human messiness. And he looks out at the world. And if we skip all the way down, he sees the crowds and he has compassion for them. Jesus sees the messiness of humanity and he says, we are like sheep without a shepherd. We need help. Now this I'm not going to make you raise your hand for. But I'm guessing that if we sat down and we took an honest inventory of our lives, we would find some area where we say, Jesus, I am a mess. I need help. And to that, I would just say, welcome to the table. Like, welcome to the community of God. And Jesus looks at his disciples, who are all messy, and he deputizes them and says, now you're going to go out. And that's what we'll talk about next week, right, is how that works. But ultimately, Jesus says, so the kingdom of God, this is what he shows us. This is what Jesus shows us about what it means to follow God, is to be so impacted by, by the person of Jesus, the truth of who God is, that it changes our lives in such a way that we bring that to other people, that that comes out of our life. And so I might ask us, like, what are the areas of our life where we can show Jesus? Because the church in America and and from our Facebook pages and what we talk about, like, we do a lot of telling. And I think we need to do a lot more showing. Dallas Church, let's be people that show Jesus just as much as we tell about Jesus. And so I don't know, I don't know exactly what um, that needs to look like for you. Maybe you're going to bring uh, some things for our hygiene resource drive. Because we're trying to give to our community just like Jesus gave to the least of these, to the people around him, maybe you have an opportunity. Maybe you're like Matthew. And you've got 
lots of people that you're connected to that could gather around a table and could hear about Jesus. They could see Jesus in you. I was a very slow adopter to watching the TV series The Chosen because I don't like Christian movies, okay? I do ministry with people. Like, I have seen people come to Jesus, and it looks nothing like Kirk Cameron crying in a movie somewhere, all right? And so I, I, I watched The Chosen, which is a TV series about, like, Jesus and his followers, and I was like, oh, like, I don't know how I feel about this. And I watched episode one, and I was like, okay, I'm not mad. I'm going to keep watching. And then I got to episode two. And that's when the manly tears started. Because <laughs> at the very end, at the end of episode two, um, in The Chosen, they, they have these Shabbat dinners that they show. So like Jewish practice, very common. People gathered around a table focusing on God. And they've got the, the rich people, the Nicodemus, like the put together guy. And they're doing like the perfect Shabbat dinner. This is exactly how it should be. Everybody's saying the right words. Everybody's doing the right thing. They've got all the wealth to like provide all the food and it's just all perfect. And then you've got a scene with like blind people, people who are lame, who can't walk, disabled. And one of the ladies used to be a prostitute in the last episode. And they are like, okay, so we're trying to figure out how to do a Shabbat dinner. So they're like, are scrambling to get the cups, and they don't have what they need. And they're like, wait, what are we supposed to say? I don't know. I don't, do you know what we're supposed to say? I don't know what we're supposed to say. And they're putting this little ramshackle thing together. And then there's a knock on the door. And do you know which one Jesus goes to? Not the put together, right? Not the one where everybody's saying the magic words. But Jesus himself shows up at the messy table with the messy people because that's the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We ask for your spirit um, to guide us and to show us steps that we can take to follow you. God, we ask for your spirit to give us healing in the areas where we are messy. Jesus, forgive us and heal us. Jesus, we ask that you would make us a community where we show other people what you're actually like. Help us to be the church. Amen.